Hello, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder. Today is a special Halloween episode. Some of you OGs know this, but I first named this podcast Taboo, Schadenfreude, and Murder. Turns out, Schadenfreude is difficult to spell, so I dropped it from the name. I've always been a voracious reader, from what the Midwestern moms of my youth would call smut, to fictional true crime, I read it all. In my late teens and early 20s, I also spent plenty of Sunday morning in bed sick with the wine flu, and I'd binge an entire day's worth of I Survived. God, I miss cable TV and marathons, but not really because hello, internet. Anyway, I've been known to watch an entire strongman competition in a day because aforementioned wine flu, and it's just my personality to be all or nothing. Then I had a couple of kids, my TV and reading time evaporated, and I rediscovered podcasts. And wow, had they changed since my days of wait, wait, don't tell me and this American life. Naturally, I became hooked on the true crime genre, mostly. Loving sword and scale before I found out Mike was a total douche, in my opinion. Disagree if you'd like. I was fortunate enough to be ground level listening to My Favorite Murder, and it was really fun to hear Karen and Georgia find their voice, tone, and place in the podcast world. They also made podcasting feel attainable. This is an observation I make years later. I wasn't thinking of starting a podcast back then. Anyway, I love Case Files, Slow Burn, Dr. Death, Criminal, Detective, Dirty John, and Wine and Crime. But I also love The Dollop, Queens, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and of course, Serial. Don't worry, Ira. You're still my number one. So, what do all of these things have in common? Schadenfreude. What is schadenfreude, you ask? It's a very simple definition. Enjoyment obtained from the troubles of others. And that's what all my micro-obsessions involve. Schadenfreude. Watching Nordic men pull semi-trucks and exert insane strength at great personal expense. Schadenfreude. Hearing about the tumultuous lives of history's most notable figures, knowing that some pretty gruesome elements are in their stories, that's schadenfreude. For the record, Marie Antoinette almost certainly did not say, then let them eat cake. And it was flavor-aid, not Kool-Aid. Okay, end of tangent. So, true crime is full of schadenfreude. Even though I've dropped the unspellable word from the podcast name, schadenfreude is still really the string that ties subject matter together. In my head, anyway. With all that said, let's talk Halloween. Per the History Channel, Halloween is an annual holiday celebrated each year on October 31st. It originated with the ancient Celtic festival of Solmen when people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off ghosts. In the 8th century, Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as as a time to honor all saints. Soon, All Saints Day incorporated some of the traditions of Samhain. The evening before was known as All Hallows' Eve and later Halloween. Over time, Halloween evolved into a day of activities like trick-or-treating, carving jack-o'-lanterns, festive gatherings, donning costumes, and eating sweet treats. Why did it evolve? Religion, of course. And costumes and candy are just way more fun. Duh. Who and why do people think Halloween is taboo? Well, mostly it's organized religion and crunchy moms at war with sugar. Not me. From the United Church of God's website... What must an unfamiliar observer think of Halloween? 
Parents dress their children as monsters, vampires, devils, witches, and ghosts, and encourage them to approach total strangers to ask them for candy and other treats. Homeowners decorate their houses with images of black cats, ghosts, goblins, and carved pumpkins, and sometimes transform their yards into make-believe graveyards. Adults dress in similar strange and outlandish costumes and go to parties in rooms decorated like dungeons or crypts. Why are such bizarre practices so popular? Why would anyone celebrate a holiday emphasizing the morbid and macabre? Where did such strange customs originate? As with Christmas and Easter, we can trace the roots of Halloween far back into the pagan past. Those pagans. The Encyclopedia of Religion says Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve, is a festival celebrated on the 31st of October, the evening prior to the Christian Feast of All Saints, All Saints Day. Halloween is the name of the Eve of Sowen, a celebration marking the beginning of the winter, as well as the first of the new year within the ancient Celtic culture of the British Isles. The time of Sowen consisted of the eve of the feast and the day itself, the 31st of October and November 1st. That was a lot more wordy. Thanks, church. God. Besides, Halloween... Oh, this is... I'm continuing to quote. Besides Halloween, the Celts observed many other holidays, including the winter solstice, later transformed into Christmas, spring fertility rites, reborn later as Easter, and May Day as a harvest festival. Concerning Halloween, the Encyclopedia of Religion continues. On this occasion, it was believed that a gathering of supernatural forces occurred at during no other time period during this year. The eve and day of Sowen were characterized as a time when the barriers between the human and supernatural worlds were broken. Otherworldly entities, such as the souls of the dead, were able to visit earthly inhabitants, and humans could take the opportunity to penetrate the domains of the gods and supernatural creatures. So Halloween is like a wormhole, or it's some kind of portal. Um, I'm not really getting it, but I'm an atheist. Okay, to continue, what the Church of God has to say online. Fiery tributes and sacrifices of animals, crops, and possibly human beings were made to appease supernatural powers who controlled the fertility of the land. So one acknowledged the entire spectrum of non-human forces that roamed the earth during the period. On this holiday, huge bonfires were set on hilltops to frighten away evil spirits. The souls of the dead were supposed to revisit their homes on this day, and the autumnal festival acquired sinister significance with ghosts, witches, hobgoblins, black cats, fairies, and demons of all kinds said to be roaming about. This just sounds like I am reading a synopsis of... um, True blood, honestly. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, back to the quote. Black cats, fairies, and demons of all kinds said to be roaming about. It was the time to placate the supernatural powers controlling the processes of nature. In addition, Halloween was thought to be the most favorable time for divinations divinations concerning... I don't even know that because I'm so not religious divinations concerning marriage, luck, health, and death. It was the only day on which the help of the devil was invoked for such purposes. Okay, so that was a lot of me fumbling through words, but evil day, 
evoke the devil, Halloween. Ancient practices continued today. As with Christmas and Easter, church leaders adopted this ancient celebration to serve their own purposes. Soen remained a popular festival among the Celtic people throughout the Christianization of Great Britain. The, Britain church, the British church attempted to divert this interest in pagan customs by adding a Christian celebration to the calendar on the same date as Soen. The Christian festival, the Feast of All Saints, commemorates the known and unknown saints of the Christian religion, just as Soen had acknowledged and paid tribute to the Celtic deities. Several ancient Halloween practices still exist in modern observances. Bobbing for apples was originally a form of divination, fortune telling. Oh, fortune telling. Divination. What the fuck? I don't know why I can't pronounce that. That's going to be this episode's Tsarnaev. See, did it there. The first person to bite an apple was predicted to be the first to marry in the coming year. The jack-o'-lantern represented a hatchman on Halloween night, or a man caught between Earth and the supernatural world. The Bible condemns the occult. Although some may dismiss the demonic symbolism and divination, I can't say it, associated with Halloween as harmless fun, the Bible reveals the existence of evil spirits led by Satan the devil, whom God holds responsible for great suffering and sorrow inflicted on the human race. Revelation 12.9 speaks of the great dragon, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. The name given him in the Bible, Satan, means adversary or enemy. The Apostle John tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Satan and the other fallen angels or demons constantly try to keep humanity spiritually blinded, turning them aside from their awesome destiny as part of the family of God. As a loving father, God commands us to avoid things that can harm us. <sighs> This is getting so preachy. I don't even think I want to go on. Concerning the spirit world, notice what God says to his people. Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them. Blah, 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 blah. All right. Modern celebrations of Halloween may appear on the surface to be quite harmless, but the spiritual implications of dabbling with the spirit world are extremely serious. I'm still quoting, by the way. I just skipped ahead because this is some religious mumbo jumbo. If you take offense to that, I guarantee to you that this is not the right podcast for you. Any who's will be. Modern celebrations of Halloween may appear on the surface to be quite harmless, but the spiritual implications of dabbling with the spirit world are extremely serious. Fortune telling, Ouija boards, astrology, voodoo, clairvoyance, black magic, and the like can all be related to occult, satanic forces, or the worship of natural phenomena and are forbidden in scripture. Jesus Christ tells us that the first and greatest commandment is to love our creator. Blah, 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 blah. So there's that perspective. Now, with all of that background, some people pick the date for some freaky shit that isn't fun Halloween spirited. Here are a few examples. Thanks, Ranker. While the vast majority of Halloween scare stories about razor blades and apples or poison candy are either urban legends or moral panics, one story is unfortunately completely true. Eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien had a packet of pixie sticks given to him by his father, Ronald, to cap off his trick-or-treating. He almost immediately went into convulsions and died an hour later. 
the death sent the O'Brien's small Texas town into a panic, and the police determined that the pixie sticks that Timothy ate were laced with cyanide. When Ronald's story kept changing, police began investigating him. They found him to be deeply in debt and that he'd taken out massive life insurance policies on his children. Police found that the other O'Brien children had also been given candy by their dad, but they hadn't eaten it. Ronald O'Brien was found guilty of murder, sentenced to death, and executed in 1984. Sheesh. Late on Halloween night 2004, roommates Leslie Mazzara, Adrian Inso. In Sogna and Lauren Menaza went to bed after handing out candy. Menanza was awoken up at 1 a.m. by the sounds of a scuffle. Not knowing what was happening, she ran in terror from the house and hid in the backyard, watching an assailant climb out the window. When the coast was clear, she ran back and upstairs and found both of her roommates dead. Throughout the investi- investigation, FBI agents found cigarette butts near the scene of the crime that matched blood evidence inside the house, but found no known matches of any DNA in any of the databases. Officers and FBI agents spoke to nearly 1,500 people of interest during the investigation of the double murder, including one of Insagna's friends, Lily Prudhomme. Her husband, Eric Koppel, became a person of extreme interest during the investigation when he refused to give a DNA sample to exclude him from the suspect pool. Nearly a year after the crime, Koppel turned himself in and confessed to the deaths of his wife's friends while giving no motive for his crime. At the time of the murders, Koppel was only engaged to the friend of one of the victims and carried on with the wedding, thinking the crimes would not be tied to him. This quote from Adrian Insagna's mother, Arlene Allen, gives a chilling insight into a murderer who thought he got away with it. You are the man who is so cruel as to invite me, the mother of the woman you murdered, to stand up for you at your wedding, to read scripture to you of love and death, and to bless your union. Throughout that weekend, you brought me into the heart of your family, knowing all the while it was you who destroyed mine. Wow. On Halloween 2010, Ohio teenager Devin Griffin returned home from Sunday church services to find his brother Derek, mother Susan, and Susan's new husband, William Lisk, murdered. Devin was so traumatized, he could only say that the scene was like something out of a haunted house. The killer was found to be William Lisk's son from a previous marriage, William Lisk Jr., who had a history of schizophrenia and violence. Lisk was later picked up at a halfway house and pleaded guilty to all three murders. He committed suicide in prison in 2015. Bronx resident Carl Jackson was a 21-year-old data entry clerk at Morgan Stanley. On Halloween night 1998, Jackson went with his girlfriend to pick up her young son from a party. While there, some teenagers threw eggs at their car, but the classic Halloween prank soon turned ugly. Jackson got out of his car, exchanged words with the teens, and got back in the car. Then one of the teens pulled a gun and shot Jackson, killing him instantly. Police later arrested 17-year-old Curtis Sterling for the murder. In 2009, three Teenage girls were abducted by a man with a gun on their way home from trick-or-treating in Woodbridge, Virginia. All three were taken at gunpoint into a wooded area and two were sexually assaulted. 
The third girl was able to call her mother, causing the man to flee. Two years later, police arrested Aaron Thomas, who was already a suspect in numerous sexual assault cases since 1997. Thomas pleaded guilty in 2012 to the three kidnappings. Yoshihiro Hattiori. Yoshihiro Hattiori. God, I'm white was a Japanese exchange student living in Baton Rouge as part of the American Field Service program. On Halloween night, 1992, Hatoroi and the young son of his host family went to a Halloween party at AFS Students. Unfamiliar with the neighborhood where the party was, the boys rang the doorbell of the wrong house. When they got no answer, they started walking back to their car. The owner of the home, Rodney Pierce then opened the door armed with a 44 Magnum revolver. Hattiori turned around and said, We're here for the party, claiming he feared for his life and that the exchange student was scary. Pierce shot Hattiori, killing him. Hattiori and his wife then went back into their house and waited 40 minutes for the police who questioned him and let him go. Only when both the governor of Louisiana and the Japanese consulate got involved was Pierre arrested, after which he was acquitted of manslaughter. Sometime in the early hours of Halloween 1981, Manhattan couple Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman were murdered in their Chelsea apartment. The couple was severely beaten before being shot in the head, execution style, with the apartment completely ransacked. New York police initially believed drug money to be the motive, but then the case took a turn for the bizarre. A prison informant claimed that one of his fellow inmates had predicted the crime weeks before it actually happened. That inmate turned out to be the son of Sam, killer, David Berkowitz. Berkowitz had long been rumored to be involved with a satanic cult that helped him with some of the murders. According to the informant, Berkowitz had told him that his cult was planning to enter a residence near Greenwich Village. Chelsea, Chelsea would qualify as that. On Halloween to carry out a ritual murder. When questioned, Berkowitz claimed that Sisman had footage of one of the Son of Sam shootings and was planning to hand it over to authorities in exchange, exchange for dropping some drug charges. While no evidence was found to support Berkowitz's claims, he was basically right about the description of Sisman's apartments. The killings are still unsolved. If you don't know anything about the Son of Sam, look it up. On Halloween night 1993, a group of five Pasadena Bloods gang members opened fire on trick-or-treating teenagers returning from a party, killing three and wounding three others. The gang members were soon arrested and police determined they had fired at the wrong people randomly shooting a group of kids rather than their intended targets, presumably of other kids. Three Bloods were found guilty of the shootings. The night before Halloween 1975, Connecticut teenager Martha Moxley left her house to attend a neighborhood party. Her body was found the next morning beneath a tree in her backyard, brutally beaten by a golf club. Twenty-five years went by until Michael Skakel, who was also 15 at the time, was arrested, charged, and convicted of the murder. The case drew worldwide attention since Skakel was a nephew of Robert F. Kennedy's widow. Because of his family's wealth, he had lived life in and out of rehab for alcohol, trying out for the Winter Olympics, and flunking out of multiple schools. 
Skakel's alibi seemed bizarre, that he had been masturbating under that tree earlier that same night, accounting for the DNA found on the body, but that he had no connection to the crime. He had a letter written on his behalf by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and and after numerous appeals was given a new trial in 2012 due to prosecutorial misconduct and a poor defense. He's currently out on bail, waiting for his new trial to start. Los Angeles hairstylist Peter Fabiano was shot dead on Halloween night 1957 when he opened his door for what he thought was a trick-or-treater but was actually a grown-up in a costume. The adult shot him in the chest with a twenty-two in a brown paper bag before fleeing the scene. Several weeks later, Golden Piers and Joan Rabble were arrested in what turned out to be a deftly plotted crime of passion. Pizer was friends or possibly in a relationship with Rabble, and Rabble was also apparently in love with Fabiano's wife, Betty. The two women conspired to get Peter out of the equation, and Rabble bought a gun for Pizer to shoot Peter with. The arrests kicked off a firestorm of lurid coverage as lesbians were seen as abnormal monsters with murderous urges. The two pleaded guilty to murder and served long prison terms. On Halloween 2011, Taylor Van Deest was leaving a party in the small town of Armstrong, Canada. She never came home and was found beaten to death near a set of railroad tracks. Her death traumatized the town, especially after it was revealed that she'd been sent a text to her boyfriend before the attack saying that she was being creeped on. Police eventually used DNA found under Taylor's fingernails, good girl, to arrest Matthew Forrester for carrying out the murder and his father, Stephen, for helping him cover it up. Fort Dodge, Iowa resident Marvin Brandlin and his wife were handing out candy to trick-or-treaters in 1982 when a man wearing a mask came to their door. He said, trick-or-treat, give me your money or I'll shoot. The Brandlins thought it was a Halloween prank and tried to remove the man's mask. Instead, he barged into the house and pulled out a gun, demanding that the couple give him the money they had stashed in their basement safe. Marvin made a grab for the masked man's gun and the robber shot Marvin in the throat. He then ran away but left the mask behind. In the years that followed, Marvin's wife died and the mask was tested for DNA evidence. As virtually nobody knew about the safe, suspicion fell on the Brandlin family and a family member did brag about committing the robbery. But there's never been enough evidence to charge him. Chris Jenkins was a 21-year-old student from the University of Minnesota who visited a downtown Minneapolis bar on Halloween night of 2012. After leaving the bar around midnight, Chris vanished without a trace. He remained a missing person for four months until his body was discovered in the Mississippi River. Since Chris was still wearing his Halloween costume, all indications were that he died shortly after he disappeared. Chris was heavily intoxicated that night, and since his death was determined to be drowning, authorities initially believed it was an accident or suicide. His parents refused to believe this and pressed for a more thorough investigation. Finally, in 2006, the death was reclassified as a homicide. While the authorities have withheld specific details, they claimed that an incarcerated suspect told them he was present when Chris was murdered and thrown off a bridge into the river. Even though police believe this man's story to be credible, no charges have ever been filed. However, one possible theory is that Chris Jenkins could have been a victim of the mysterious smiley face murders. 
During this time period, approximately 40 male college students in the United States were victims in a bizarre series of drowning deaths. In some of these cases, unexplained smiley face graffiti was found near the body of water where the victim drowned. This had led some to theorize these deaths were connected and that the victims were drugged before being thrown into a body of water to make their murder look like accidental drownings. While no smiley face graffiti was ever found in connection to Chris Jenkins' death, investigators cannot overlook its similarities to many of the unsolved cases. Penn State grad student Cindy Song disappeared after leaving a party on Halloween night in 2001. She'd been dropped off at her apartment and had gone inside, but nobody saw her after that, and no trace of her has ever been found. The case has taken a number of bizarre twists, and for a while, the investigation focused on a man named Hugo, Hugo Marcus Selinski. Selinski had been arrested after five corpses were found in his backyard. A police informant linked Selinski and another man to Cindy, claiming the duo had kidnapped, raped, and murdered her. To make things even weirder, the other man named in the kidnapping was found dead in Selinski's backyard. More bodies have been found there, but none have been proven to be Cindy, and the case remains open. The Empty Cradle On Halloween night in 1977, the parents of 19-month-old Nima Louise Carter placed their child inside her crib at their Lawton, Oklahoma home. The next morning, Nima's parents were shocked to discover that she was missing. Since the windows in Nima's bedroom were locked, it's theorized that her abductor had been hiding in the closet and sneaked the child out of the house while her parents were sleeping in the living room. A month later, a group of kids were playing in an abandoned house four blocks away from the Carter home. When they opened up a house's re the house's refrigerator, they received a horrifying shock when the decomposed body of an infant came tumbling out. The child was identified as Nima Louise Carter, who died of suffocation. A similar crime had occurred in Lawton in April 1976 when a pair of three-year-old twin sisters, Mary and Tina Cartpitcher, were lured out of their home by a young woman and forcibly confined inside a refrigerator at another abandoned house. When the sisters were found two days later, Mary had suffocated, but Tina managed to survive. Tina identified her abductor as a local teenage babysitter named Jacqueline Robidoux. However, the child's age made her testimony unreliable, and there wasn't enough corroborating evidence to file charges at that time. Jacqueline eventually became a babysitter for Nima Louise Carter. She was an obvious suspect after Nima's murder, but once again, there was no evidence to implicate her. Years later... Robidoux was finally charged with Mary Carpenter's murder and was given a life sentence. She died in prison of liver cancer in 2005, but never admitted to the still unsolved murder of Nima Louise Carter. The murder of Chame Weiss. Chame Weiss was a 15-year-old Orthodox Jewish boy attending the Mestiva of Long Beach, Mitzva of Long Beach. I am so white, I uh, with no religious background, so I will um, 
absolutely botch anything religious related um, without there being any preference to, to one or the other. I will fuck them all up. Anyway, uh, attending the, let's say, mitzvah, because I, I now bar mitzvah, etc., in Long Beach. Uh, Yeshiva High School in New York. The morning after Halloween in 1986, the entire school was horrified when Chain was found murdered on his dorm room floor. He had been bludgeoned to death after a sharp blow to the skull and was repeatedly stabbed in the head, but no murder weapon could be found anywhere. Since there was no evidence of a struggle, it seemed likely that Chain was killed in his bed while he slept before his body was moved to the floor. By all accounts, Chain was a very well-liked boy, so no one could figure out a possible motive for the crime. There were signs that the killer was familiar with the religious customs of Orthodox Judaism. Even though it had been a chilly night, the window in Chain's room was open, a custom which is often done to let the deceased person's spirit out. After the murder, one of the school's rabbis left a memorial candle to burn in Chain's room. Two days later, a second candle appeared but no one ever admitted to putting it there. There were no signs of forced entry anywhere, indicating the killer may have been familiar with the dormitory. During the night, another student on James' floor remembered being momentarily awakened when the door to his room was opened before it was immediately shut again. Could the killer have initially entered the wrong room by mistake? After 28 years, authorities have never been able to find a suspect or any answers about why Chaim Weiss was murdered in such a brutal fashion. Orange Socks and the Identity On Halloween in 1979, the unidentified body of a young woman was found in a concrete culvert near Interstate 35, just outside of Georgetown, Texas. FYI, I live very close to 35 in Minnesota. It goes all the way down to Texas, which is kind of crazy and not really because that's how roads work. Anyway, back to the story. The victim appeared to be in her 20s and had been sexually assaulted before she was strangled to death. It seemed likely she was murdered that very same day, and the only unique clue to her identity was a silver opal-shaped ring on her hand. The victim was nude, and the only garment of clothing she had on was a pair of orange socks. Since the young woman was never identified, Orange Socks became her nickname. I guess like green boots on the mountain? What is that, Everest? Jesus Christ, I can't remember. The victim was noon and the only garment, orange socks, that became her nickname. Years later, serial killer Henry Lee Lucas confessed to the murder of orange socks. He even stated that he had sex with her corpse after she was dead. However, Lucas did not know the woman's identity. He claimed he picked her up while hitchhiking and only remembered her name was Joni or Judy. After being sentenced to death for the woman's murder in 1984, Lucas recanted his confession in order to have his sentence commuted. Indeed, further investigation showed that Lucas was likely working in Florida on the day of the murder. Lucas was notorious for frequently confessing to murders he never committed, and no one is sure how many people he actually killed. Henry Lee Lucas died in prison in 2001, but Orange Socks is not only is the only unidentified murder victim that he has been connected to. Sorry, he is not the only unidentified murder victim that he has been connected to. If you don't know anything about Henry Lee Lucas, look him up crazy as fuck. 
On the morning of October 31st, 2004, a housekeeper at the Hilton Resort and Marina in Key West, Florida, found something in the garbage bin of the ladies' room in the lobby. She may have initially assumed it was a Halloween prank, but the situation became truly horrific once she realized she had found the body of a newborn infant girl. The child still had the umbilical cord and placenta attached to her body, indicating that someone recently had given birth to the girl and decided to just toss, toss her in the trash. It did not take authorities long to figure out who was responsible. Hours earlier, a young pregnant woman and three male companions were seen walking through the hotel lobby. She entered the ladies' room while the men waited outside. At one point, a female witness went into the washroom and heard the pregnant woman moaning inside a stall. When the witness asked the three men if they knew the woman, one of them claimed to be her boyfriend. He even called out her name at one point, which sounded like Samantha or Sonia. The pregnant woman was in the bathroom for approximately 40 minutes, and a security guard saw her clutching her stomach when she exited. 40 minutes? I was in labor for 36 hours, and I actively pushed for over 40 minutes. Are you kidding me? God. When the guard asked if she was all right, he was told she had gotten sick by partying too much at nearby Fantasy Fest. The four individuals were escorted out of the hotel, but the child was not discovered until morning. Fingerprints, blood samples, and DNA evidence were taken from the washroom and compared to several suspects, including Casey Anthony. However, the mother and the three men have yet to be identified, and no one has been prosecuted for the newborn's death. On Halloween in 1955, Marilyn Damon took her two-year-old son, Stephen, and seven-month-old daughter, Pamela, to a supermarket in East Meadow, New York. While she went shopping, Marilyn set, let Stephen wait outside the store with his sister, who was inside a carriage. That's fucking crazy. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and I would never do that. I know it's the 50s, but Jesus Christ. Okay. So the two-year-old is not, okay, not victim blaming. The two-year-old is taking care of the baby outside of a grocery store. Ten minutes later, Marilyn exited the store and was shocked to discover that both Stephen and the carriage were gone. Shortly thereafter, the carriage was discovered about a block and a half away. However, even though Pamela had been left beside, behind inside the carriage, Stephen was nowhere to be found. He has not been seen since. In many cases where infants are abducted, it's theorized that the perpetrator wanted a child of their own and decided to raise the missing infant under a new name. Over the years, DNA testing has been utilized in an attempt to determine if Stephen Damon was ever given a new identity. At one point, investigators noticed that Stephen bore a resemblance to the infamous boy in the box, an unidentified child who was found murdered inside a cardboard box in Philadelphia in 1957. However, DNA testing would eventually confirm that Stephen and the boy in the box were not the same person. In 2009, a Michigan man named John Barnes came forward believing he might be Stephen, but DNA testing also ruled this out. It's possible that an adult Stephen Damon might be living another life somewhere under a different identity, unaware that he was once taken from his real family. However, his whereabouts continue to remain unknown. Lastly, a crime to any Minnesotan child in 1991, the Halloween blizzard. Many Minnesotans remember the horrendous Halloween of 1991. It all started with the snow, and before we knew it, the wind hit and the entire state was shut down. 
By midnight on the 31st, 8.2 inches of snow had fallen in the Twin Cities, a record for the date and the entire month of October. The snow continued until November 3rd, and by the time it ended, it had become one of the largest and longest in Minnesota history, dropping a whopping 36.9 inches on Duluth. In southern Minnesota, 11 counties were declared federal disaster areas, and 22 people lost their lives. Shit, I didn't know that. That's sad. Now, let's bring it back to me. I was six, and my mom had to pull me and my two sisters in a wagon through the snow with our costumes on over our snowsuits so we could trick-or-treat. As a mom of two small kids, I would have said, hell no, Halloween is canceled. So, thanks, mom. Halloween is a celebration of schadenfreude. Be safe, have fun, and thank you for listening to this special Halloween episode of Taboo and Murder. Please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and I'd greatly appreciate if you'd share with a friend. iTunes subscriptions, ratings, and reviews are the lifeblood of podcasts, as I'm learning. Please find us on Twitter at SMTaboo. Thank you for listening.